0: Shaking the Nickel Bush by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1962. I'm going to read the rest of chapter uh, 5. It's called Friendly Phoenix, and I am at White Silver Springs. So, uh, I've been busy with business meetings and ministry meetings and the things that we've been working on here, and now it's good to wake up early this morning and have time to read to you. Father, I thank you for the uh, the time here in Pennsylvania. I thank you that um, that I'm here and around the country. Uh, there are kids and grandkids able to hear and to um, enjoy the rest of this chapter. And I pray that you um, continue to watch over uh, those who are growing in the womb, those who are uh, growing and uh, maturing in their homes. And I pray that we would be a family that's known to uh, to glorify you and to delight in your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, all the time I'd worked at the munitions plant, I'd had a roommate who worked in the designing department. He was only a few years older than I, but before the war, he'd been one of the better sculptors in New York City and had taught in one of the art schools. The reason I'd moved in with him was because he'd been because he'd seen me whittling a horse's head one noon after a bunch of us had eaten our lunches in the shade of a powder shed. Ivan had been sitting five or six feet up the line from me, but when the man beside me got up, he came over and took the vacant place. He watched me for maybe ten minutes, then asked, Where did you learn that? I didn't, I told him. I've whittled horses ever since I was a little kid. Ever model them in clay, he asked. I've tried to, I told him, but it's no good. With clay, the legs aren't strong enough to hold the bodies up. Don't you know how to make an armature, he asked. I don't even know what one is, I said. If you'd like to come up to my room after supper, I'll show you, he told me. While I was telling him I'd like to come, the whistle blew, so he scribbled down his address and room number on a card, and we both hurried back to our jobs. That evening, when I went hunting for the address, I found it to be one of the best apartment houses in Wilmington, with a beautiful lobby and an elevator. When I asked the elevator boy where I'd find the room number, he said, oh, that's the artist, top floor in the rear. As I walked down the carpeted hall I felt about as much out of place as a catfish in a goldfish bowl. I hadn't expected to find the man's the man living in so fancy a place, so I hadn't bothered to put on my good suit before coming. Even after I'd reached the door I had to stop a minute to decide whether to wrap or to go back to my little eight dollar a week room and put on my good suit. I was sure that any room in that building would be furnished like a palace, and I'd look like a ninny coming into it in my old working clothes i just made up my mind to go back and change when the door opened and Ivan stood there in a dirty linen smock holding a letter in his hand. "'Oh,' he said, "'there you are. Go on in while I drop this letter down the chute. Should have sent it away last night.' I couldn't have been more surprised if I'd stepped through a doorway and found myself on the moon. The floor, about fifteen feet square, was covered with sheathing paper, splashed with plaster, and pockmarked with bits of stepped-on clay.' Instead of the fancy furniture I had expected, the room was bare, except for a big work table in the center, a cluttered tool bench on one side, an easel, and a couple of plastered, plaster-spattered chairs. Standing here and there were a dozen or so pedestals, some with plaster heads or busts on them, and some that were covered over with pieces of damp cloth. On a shelf under the work table were plaster hands, arms showing the overlapping and twisting muscles as though the skin had been peeled away, A broken foot, and three or four bas reliefs. I was still standing just inside the doorway looking around when Ivan said from behind me, This is my shop. I live in the other room. Come, toss your hat into the bedroom and we'll see what we can do about an armature. As Ivan spoke, we walked part way down the hall, uh, down along the wall, and he opened the door to a bedroom that was as spick and span as the shop was messy. There was a thick carpet on the floor, pictures on the walls, and all the furniture was dark, satiny mahogany. "'How good a shot are you?' he asked as he pointed toward a post on the nearest twin bed. "'I don't go in from the shop without changing my shoes. Fortunately, I have another door from the hallway.' I sailed my hat for the top of the bedpost, and I happened to have good luck. It lit like a horseshoe over a peg and spun around a couple times without falling off. "'Good eye,' Ivan said. "'No wonder you can whittle a horse.' Can you make them look like any special one? If people know the horse himself, I don't have to tell them which one I've whittled, I told them. Tie him up somewhere and use him for a model, he asked. No, I never tried that, I said. If I've known him well, I can remember what he looks like, and I guess I just kind of see him in my head. Good, good, he said. Now, let's get at that armature. How big a horse do you want to make? That evening, Ivan showed me how to twist the wires and make an armature for a horse- a foot high. I never knew anyone except my own father, who was so patient. He didn't try to do it for me, just showed me how and let me do it by myself. And with all the horses I'd whittled, he told me something I'd never noticed, that the average horse is square, his body the same length as his height at the withers, with his forelegs, neck, and head each about half of that length. Before we started, he took a piece of charcoal, knelt, and with a few quick strokes, he sketched a rearing stallion on the floor. The armature is simply the skeleton, he told me, as he drew a heavy black line that looped through the head. Along the arch of the neck, curve of the back, and length of the tail. There's the main stem, he said. Now, we'll attach lighter wires to it and shape them into the bones for the shoulders, hips, and legs. As he spoke, he drew in, he drew in the lines to show me exactly how the wires would be bent and shaped so as to be hidden inside the clay. And how... Uh, Those for the tail and hind legs would extend down through a wooden base to hold the framework firm and solid. Then, along the back, he sketched in hanging wires with heavy crosses at their lower ends. Those are wooden bats, he said, to support the weight of the body instead of ribs. The whole thing hadn't taken more than five minutes, but when he'd finished, I knew everything I needed to know about armatures. The second evening, Ivan showed me how to moisten the clay, work it pliable in my hands, lay it on the armatures with the face of my thumb, and scrape it into the shapes I wanted with his tools. The third evening, he watched me as I finished the head and neck of my horse, making suggestions to help me here and there. Then, when I was putting the damp cloth on it to keep from it from drying out until I could come again, he asked, Why don't you move in here with me? That would save you a long walk these evenings, and you could be quite a help to me with some tricky castings I'd like to make this winter. I'd like to, I told him, but I can't afford the rent. He asked me how much rent I was paying for my room, and when I told him, he said it would cost me the same there. My eight dollars a week couldn't have been a quarter of what that apartment cost in wartime, but it was the nearest to a home I'd ever had away from home. And Ivan taught me that all that I had the, all, taught me all that I had, all that I had the ability to learn. By the end of the war, I'd made hundreds of horses and eight or ten portrait busts of friends we had at the plant. They didn't have the lifelike look that Ivans did, but anyone could tell whose portraits they were. Well, my hands were itching for the feel of the clay again as I stood there on the sidewalk in Phoenix, watching the old Mexican build up the sides of his jar with his wet hands. I waited until the jar was finished, then went in and asked what he'd charge for me for a bucket of clay. He started off with a dollar, but I worked it down to 60 cents for the clay and an old bucket to carry it in. Then I told him I'd come back and get it within an hour. Lonnie wasn't at the stockyards when I got there, but I recognized a couple of the boys who were hanging around. One of them thought he might have hopped a freight back to Tucson, and the other thought he'd gone west, maybe to look for me at Wickenburg or to go on through to California for the winter. I told him where he could find me if he came back, then hunted around the yards for pieces of baling wire and sticks I could use for making armatures. I don't suppose that bucket of clay weighed more than 25 pounds, but with my back and legs and arms as lame as they were, it felt as though it weighed a ton before I got back to my hotel room. After I made another trip out for a pair of pliers, I spread the tarpaulin from my, from my bedroll on the floor and spent the rest of the morning twisting up an armature for a little horse, dampening my clay, and working it over to get out any particles of sand or grit. My fingers were too rough to do a good job of smoothing the clay, but I whittled myself some little tools that worked real well, and that afternoon got away from me as though it had been only a hour, half hour long. When I went over for my supper, I took the Larsons, the horse I'd made, An old mare we used to have when I was a boy, and anyone might have thought I'd brought them a present worth a $100. Of course, it was worthless clay, because it would crack and warp out of shape as soon as it dried. So I told them I'd take it back to my room and cast it in plaster of Paris. The rest of that week was fun. I I made a horse for the doctor and another for the hotel keeper. My plaster cast came out better than I expected. In Arizona, the plaster dried a lot faster than in Delaware, and the Matrix chipper chipped off cleaner. In the middle of the week, I sent Mother a money order for $50 with a long letter telling her that my boss had furnished me with an outfit so I hadn't had to buy one and that he'd given me a raise in pay. Then I told her a long story about his sending me around to the backcountry to inspect cattle herds, and I said I didn't know just where I'd be, but I'd write often. The Larson's must have spent hours in finding things I could eat and cooking them for me. Even with a few things on my diet, every meal was different. Every one was enough for two men. And after I'd taken them the horse, they wouldn't let me pay them a penny. Each day, I went to the doctor the first thing after breakfast. And each time, he said my heart sounded a little better. Each day, my back ached less. The stiffness drained out of my arms and legs. And the black and blue spots faded. And the scabs began peeling off the scratches on my face and hands. I could have been happy to stay right there in Phoenix all winter, just fussing with the clay and going over to Larson's for my meals. But of course, I couldn't afford to do it. I told Mother I had a good job and I could send her $50 a month. My room was costing a dollar a day. I'd already told the Larson's they they couldn't feed me any longer for a little plaster horse and I had no idea how big my doctor's bill might be. I was already down to $364 and if I didn't find some kind of job pretty soon, I'd go broke again. That's the rest of the chapter. Uh, Pretty neat how uh, he was gifted with a friend who uh, not only uh, took him in to show him how to do things, but gave him a room. That's a big deal. And now he's got a skill. I love you guys.